Hey everyone, this episode ran long, so I split it up into two parts. So this is part one. So if you're listening to this first, then you did it correctly. Hooray. If you're listening to this second, what the hell are you doing, man? So uh, you're looking around in this uh, in this mansion, and you see on one of the walls a big strange zipper. Uh, and it's open. And sticking out of that zipper is our co-host, Chris. Hey, what's up? Um, so you go through the zipper and on the other side is, you know, you're just outside the mansion. That's weird. Uh, how did that happen? Um, on the mansion, on the back porch, uh, there's a man who has, uh, just punched a stone and that stone turned into a turtle. And the man who punched that stone is our guest host today, John. Oh, that's me. (laughs) Uh, and I'm, uh. What am I doing? I am uh, rewinding time uh, to, f- to figure out uh, how I'm going to edit this into something coherent uh, for the intro of the show. And uh, the, the guy who's rewinding that is uh, me, Ryan. I'm the other host. <laughs> Say hello, uh, Ryan. Welcome to Neighbor Science, everyone. Um, today, uh, we're going to be talking about uh, an essay that I wrote, which is kind of a like a summary of all the like kind of class analysis things that I've read and thought about for the past few years. Um, and John gave me some really good feedback on um, on the writing. Um, I'm trying to submit it to uh, the new, completely legitimate, uh, dead serious news organization, uh, which is known as. GettingYourDickSucked.com, um, and if anyone else has any uh, serious content to submit to that, um, you should look them up on uh, Twitter or go to GettingYourDickSucked.com and uh, send it up, send it over to them. Um, so uh, let's get started on this. Uh, so John suggested I just read the intro paragraph, and then uh, Chris suggested we go through the rest bullet by bullet. Um, so. Yeah, I'll go ahead and start. For many people today, the fact of a reality TV character clowning his way to the most prominent position of power on Earth has revealed the ugly reality underneath our former beliefs. We live in the same class society that has existed for 10,000 years. Our statesmen have not devised a selection system for the most qualified, smartest people to rise up and guide us to our, toward our ever slightly improving futures. Meritocracy is a soothing lie. The people at the top are actually only there because their fathers gave them a small loan of a million dollars, while the rest of us spend our lives breaking our bodies or getting screamed at or filling in spreadsheets because our fathers will never have a million dollars in their lives. Um, So the first thing uh, that I bring up in here is uh, research by Blair Fix, who we've had on the show before to talk about his research, uh, which reveals that uh, the biggest factor in explaining personal income Distribution is your like the distance that you are from the top of a organization's hierarchy. So if you're the CEO, you're going to have more uh, higher income than someone who is lower than you. Which like seems like common sense, but no personal, no theory of personal income distribution ever accounts for that. Hmm. Okay. I mean, it's true, and. It sort of undercuts like another like theory, I think, of uh, capitalism, where 
I mean, supposedly you wouldn't have to be at the top of one of these uh, companies in order to receive uh, the income uh, from that item. You could just have like a really great idea. You could come up with like a really great song. You could have like a really great book. But then again, that still belies the fact that even with the greatest ideas, which could possibly like rocket society forward, um, be it like a business patent or an invention, it really doesn't mean anything unless it's coupled together with uh, the power that comes from having a hierarchy that's probably controlling some means of production in some way. And and we haven't really talked about this on the show yet, but um, I mean, even a lot of the musicians now that are really rich are the ones like Jay-Z um, and Kanye who like create companies uh, that they are, at the, you know, and they're at the top of the hierarchy of them. So they oh, no, create rock aware or whatever. And yeah, I mean, music is an excellent way of starting to see uh, where this idea of like, you know, I, I don't, I don't know how much you guys are familiar with copyright law, but it's an insanely like backward system. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm pretty familiar. I had to take a few intellectual property law classes for my computer science degree. Yeah, and, and it, it gets insanely dumber and dumber the more you apply it just to the cultural aspects that you're handling, especially when it comes to movies. You look at a lot of copyright as it applies um, to these like softer cultural things. And basically, I believe there's like a date that's holding firm somewhere within like the 20s or 30s that applies specifically to Disney movies. Um, like yeah, it's Mickey Mouse. Mickey Mouse. Mickey Mouse and Steamboat Willie. Um, yep. And they've just been holding on to that. Uh, and extending it, I think the last one was like the Sona, Sonny Bono uh, copyright extension in like the 70s. Um, and I might might be just be talking out of both sides of my mouth because uh, I don't have that information directly on me. I mean, but basically, you know, a bunch of lawyers get together, they go to Congress, they're like, yo, this isn't long enough to support these artists or anything. But really, it's not artists holding on to these. Basically, right. as a musical artist, um, if we're going to like go back to like talking about you know, like Jay-Z and Kanye West is like you write a song, you do the copyright, but basically you don't really own the copyright. Um, as a, like a recording artist, basically what happens is uh, you like sign a, a publishing deal, and if you're the one like writing the songs, then maybe you get a little bit of revenue from that copyright. But say you're doing a performance and you're selling that performance to a label, and then the label sells your music. Basically, what happens is they give you a, a huge fucking advance with which you're supposed to record your album with. Um, and and then after you record that album, whatever money is left over doesn't really matter. Uh, what basically happens is as the company is now selling that product on the other side, they're like, oh, man, you're, it turns out you haven't paid back all of that advance yet all the money that we put into producing it there are huge amounts of like hidden fees put into it something even like called a breakage fee which refers back to when they would transport um the actual vinyl records in mass loads in like the trucks because you know shit's flimsy it'll one or two will break per thing so like all right a they break charge the artist fee. for that that's huh? crazy yeah they, 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 they the actually charge fees and, and the worst wow. part is they're still charging the breakage fee as you're recording digital music. So why is that shit even still in there? I mean, the <laughs> right. accounting, you know, like, Ty goes you to know, runner. Sometimes, uh, sometimes there's dropped packets when you're uh, streaming in TCP. 
Yeah. <laughs> right. They're not listening to Shattered the whole song. Shattered all over my kitchen floor. <laughs> yes. I mean, so shit gets ridiculous as um, record labels, uh, as record labels try to account for, hey, have you paid back all of your advance yet? And that, that's just the way it used to work in like 2000s up through like maybe early 2010s. Um, I'm not as hip to the scheme anymore as what like current uh, recording labels will do, but basically it, it got screwed up so much. But that uh, the reason why you're seeing like the influx of like SoundCloud artists is a mixture of uh, one labels like will wait for other bands to like blow up or something. They'll wait for your musical act to blow up. Then they'll come in. Then they'll try to sign you to a deal once you've already proven that you can sell. Like yeah. they're not yep. even trying to take a chance on developing people. Like A and R has, or, yeah, or it's the startup model applied to music now. Where yeah, exactly. Like exactly. A Silicon Valley like entrepreneur. Your goal is to grow big enough and get noticed by one of the big companies who will just acquire you. Yep. Yeah, that's it's basically yep. what's happening to, to Silicon Valley startups, where Google or Facebook will buy your app and just roll it into their shit. That's what's been happening in the, within the music industry, as like you've gotten to things like MySpace and everything. It's why like, uh, and it's like, the same thing with uh, pop music. My my cousin is um, he's in a country band and he's a pop song writer, and he tells me all the time that like pop writers will try to write a song for like a specific artist. Like they'll try to write like a Rihanna song or a Ed Sheeran song and, yeah, and they can, they can stuck. choose to take it and perform it uh, or, or not. Yeah. I mean, like even Ed Sheeran does that. Like uh, that, that one song, the whatever your body one, I don't, I don't pay attention. I'm to in love with the shape of you like that one. Yeah, 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 yeah. He wrote that for I think he wrote that for Rihanna actually. Oh wow! But then she didn't want it, so he decided to perform it himself. Yeah, and and that works out better because like he's not going to make money probably, and and it's weird to describe it like this, but you have to decouple the thought of selling the recording, but then also like the content of the recording. So he's making money from the content of the actual recording, mm -hmm. but maybe not the recording itself. I don't know. I'd have to see Ed Sheeran's like deals and. That shit's like way off the records, being probably torn apart by teams of corporate lawyers who are going head to head to make sure that either Ed Sheeran can recoup some of the money from the actual recording and that he'll never recoup any money from the actual recording because that's just how record labels work. And um, that whole thing about squeezing surplus labor from people like that shit would probably be most visible to recording artists. But of course... Uh, good luck trying to get any of them to unionize or anything in any meaningful way. <laughs> right. So, uh, totally random. I can't believe this is the first time this has ever happened, but I just splashed sake in my eye. <laughs> it fucking hurts really bad. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> oh, God. That's what it feels like when your labor gets exploited. <laughs> just burns. Yeah. Speaking of, like, um, distributive, uh, let's see, like acquiring, you know, popular artists or, or whatever um, and, and rights to their, to their, essentially to their revenue um, and, and all that, that they do in music. Uh, this was, so Ryan, you and I were talking about doing a, a bit on, on the publishing industry with Coffee with Comrades folks for, mm -hmm. for a few weeks, but we never have quite gotten them um, 
like scheduled for us. But, uh, but like, so in a nutshell, you know, what we can maybe flesh out with them if we still want to do that. But in a nutshell, uh, with writers, um, say, you know, cause I write novels, uh, Hey everybody, I write novels, <laughs> pay me money. Uh, but, uh, but anyway, uh, what we have to fucking deal with is that, um, it's almost even worse because we have to prove to these extremely like fuddy duddy capitalist publishing houses that we're worth gambling on. And then similar kinds of um, like clawbacks occur where they're like, Oh yeah. So we try to make money on your shit, but uh, also we put out all these physical copies that uh, didn't sell. So we're just going to keep all this money and your royalties are going to be like a dime a month, you know, uh, things like that. Um, and I think that as self publishing has, um, sort of swelled up as a kind of an alternative um, uh, mode of production basically and and market too uh, which which um, you know has potential for things like dual power but also you know is is actively being co-opted by places like Amazon because you know we haven't come up with a fucking fifty percent of e-commerce is on Amazon. Yeah, exactly. So it's like we have to we have to come up with some some nice communist publishing houses, folks. But um, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's it's a a shame because like obviously along these lines, like the big thing about going to Amazon and publishing through Amazon is like Mm -hmm. everyone is already there, and a lot of the the places where people already are, those are obviously all all uh, capitalist spaces. if, if there ever was to be like that fully digital um, dual power situation where people are already there and you yep. could give your money to obviously something that isn't going to recreate these systems of exploitation further down their line in their physical spaces, mm-hmm. it would be yep. like, well, where's where's communist Twitter at? I guess it's like Mastodon, but yeah. oh, that, that actually got me thinking like, uh, does it be yeah, neat? Platforms if- are hard because they're only useful if there's a lot of people on there. Exactly. We don't get a lot of people on there. It's you know, it's like kind of a catch twenty two or whatever. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If if we had the power, we wouldn't need to get the power in the first place. Is basically right. Right. What we need to do is get Bernie Sanders elected, and then he'll pass a law forcing everyone to move to Macedon. We are sick and tired of two hundred (laughs) and eighty characters. Every American deserves at least four hundred and twenty (laughs) characters. I feel I feel like that would actually be a platform if, if you look at it for like mm. especially the pissed off conservatives who are like they're getting kicked off of Twitter. Every every red blooded American really deserves at least two thousand followers. They're all currently within Twitter. The top one percent of one percent are getting all the likes and retweets. Americans yep. are sick and tired of being shadow banned. <laughs> and then Killer Mike just like raps for everybody for like a few minutes. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't heard much from Killer Mike lately. I thought he was uh, yeah. I thought he was Bernie's guy. Like, what happened there? You know, I don't know. I think he has other shit to do. You know, I mean, yeah, Bernie might make be a cool show. Bernie might be outsourcing because I I saw I saw a Bernie rapper um somebody oh. who's like probably was it trying huh was it Soul I I don't remember the guy's name um I know I have I have the post somewhere it's like I've never heard this guy except for when he was like yeah I'm doing this Bernie rap and he's of course getting the Bernie 
the the Bernie train retweets all along mm-hmm. from Twitter, but it's uh, you know you listen to it and you're like this this doesn't hit and why do I hate this even even though it's like everything that you could agree with like oh man it's hip hop it's Bernie um you know person of color checks all the boxes and then you listen to this like no this is absolute dog shit oh my god what the what I think it's hard to make a rap about Bernie Sanders that isn't like corny in some way you know it's hard to rap <laughs> about anything which isn't like like a a sort of a sort of um survival within the neoliberal hell world like if yeah. if if you go slightly off that ta- tangent and it's it, it like it doesn't hit like there's definitely like a um like a uh within the pressure cooker of of, of the world we live in like there definitely are diamonds out there in the rough that are produced you listen to it and you're like damn that that fucking that fucking slaps and you listen yeah. to this guy and it's like he needs to go back in the pressure cooker for a little bit longer this <laughs> this dish is not done <laughs> right right yeah i've been listening to a lot of uh <clears throat> sauce Waka and maxo cream the last couple of months and like they have some really like class conscious songs but then also like they don't have like a coherent theory of like what we should do about that you know so it's just kind of like, you know, there's a bunch of people on the bottom and it's mostly my people and we're always going in and out of jail and we're always broke as shit and you get, we get fucked with constantly. Uh, but also, uh, you know, the main thing I care about is like, don't get fake diamonds and, uh, you know, be grateful for, for me for like getting you money. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the part I miss is like... um. There are definitely people like uh, Dead Prez, who mm. are definitely on the social tip. That's that's a group. I mean, it's, it's not not a new group or anything, but I went back and recently uh, recently listened to uh, Dead Wolves, and that that definitely at some parts you're like, holy shit, this is this is something. And also even just like older stuff that isn't even like class conscious, but like even sometimes. Like if you listen to somebody like Big L, I'm not sure if you two are familiar, but no, nah, he's Wait, so he's rapper from Harlem, um, and okay. basically he's rapping in the early '90s, and even in his bars, like he's he was really ahead of the curve on critiquing Giuliani. Um, oh, okay. There's an I don't think there's any other rapper who has a recording of them saying that they have plans to get Giuliani hung and <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> that kicks ass. <laughs> so, I mean, like he wasn't always like that cool. And there are definitely like things baked in along with that, where you're just like, oh, yeah, I don't, I don't think I can agree with that anymore. Um, but there's definitely like a, a very, very, like lumpen proletariat like character to it to where if the conditions yeah. were there or if there was a movement beside him like he definitely probably would have been the ones like definitely he's a tip of the spear guy um uh-huh. but you know after the pruning of the 1960s and 1970s of a lot of these leftist movements you know a lot of them are just like you know they're raisins in the sun they never had the the chance to really develop with that sort of thing yeah, I think it was T from Champagne Sharks who was saying that like um <clears throat> what we've been trying to do in the last like couple decades is have like art lead like in the you know, in the revolution or whatever. 
when it should be like the revolution goes first and then we develop art like alongside of it yeah so we're kind of putting the cart before the horse or whatever and there was also have you guys um read any of like no shortcuts about labor organizing recently not yet not yet i've read um sort of like the cliff notes in an article recently but i think actually you and i were exchanging some thoughts on it right like a few weeks ago but go ahead yeah, I mean, I've I've read the first sort of opening chapters where it starts describing things, and I, and I have heard like a lot, like um, in the 1960s, like the civil rights era, there was this sort of shifting from working class movements to more like student led activist activities, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh-huh. and that might have been to like maybe the detriment of these movements <laughs> because like uh-huh. I mean, it's great to see young people involved. I would never stop students from getting out there, but I mean, without working class people, without the power of strikes, yeah, students and are mostly white bougie people, especially yeah. before the last couple, like before like the nineties. But not even who they are, but like the power they affect. Like it's one yeah. thing to march out in the street to make a demonstration to to have this spectacle before you. Like mm. I'm mad, I'm not going to take it anymore. But it's like, yeah. all right, what the, f- the fuck are you going to do? Not turn in your oh fucking yeah, like math students homework? don't have a lever right, exactly. of power that right. they can control really. Right. Yeah. Right. But yeah. if if you, like say the garbage men go on strike, that's like that's that shit's just piling up in the streets. Like a yeah. city will grind uh-huh. to the fucking halt if yeah, yeah. it's not handing handling its sanitation. That's very necessary to a city. If yeah. people yeah. aren't running the power plants, like where where are these key sectors of the economy being organized? Like mm-hmm. these are the areas you could be organizing under, but. I mean, there's no sort of I mean, power it, analysis there. Those kind of jobs are the ones that are probably most affected by, like, contracting, right? Is, like, really important, like, infrastructure-type jobs. Definitely. Uh, and probably- yeah. Yeah. I mean, it depends on if they've if they've kept uh, themselves unionized or not, usually. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, some of the... I guess uh, it's probably regional, too. Yeah. yeah it's re- I was going to say, you know, D.C. has a pretty solid... I, I think they have a bunch of unions in things like the transit industry and shit like that, uh-huh. you know? So those people get a decent fucking salary, as I recall. Um, I might be wrong. You know something I really details, noticed when I was like, up when I was up in Cape Cod is, uh, or well, not Cape Cod really, but um, in um, south uh, southwest Massachusetts, where my relatives actually live, there is mm-hmm. a ton of union buildings there, and I don't think I have nice, ever yeah. seen a single union building in Virginia. And I've oh, lived no. here for Virginia has some years. of the worst. The worst labor laws. It's it's a very much yeah. a right to work state. I, yeah. Um, it is, yeah, yeah. There's well, a right and, to work and, building that's on the way to work for me. It's right yeah. off of. Oh, it's not on the way to work for me, but it's right off of 495, mm-hmm. like at the intersection of 495 and Braddock Road. There's the right yeah. to work building there. So let's so let's uh, on that note. I mean, it's important to to remember that. Um, okay, uh, let's see. So New England, much of New England, uh, so like Maine and 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 you know the, the more rural parts were a lot of the early, uh, earlier kind of industrial areas. You know, there's like I think a lot of like logging and like you know fabrication and shit like that. Um, yeah. And I think obviously shipping, um, and you know fishing and, and things like that. Uh, and and so the huh? Distilling. Distilling. Yes. 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 Um, Exactly. So all these all these industrial labors and things that you can um, pretty easily trace to like the 19th and 20th century 
industrial labor movement and unionization and everything like that, you know, they got the jump on that partly because of that um, and partly probably because they had um, some higher uh, density of um, like white working class. I wouldn't be surprised. And so. So I was um, actually listening to uh, uh, Matt Chrisman inebriated past episode today where he was talking about the how the two party system um, like the the modern iteration of the two party system is like uh, in fundamental opposition to the checks and balances of the <laughs> constitution or whatever and one of the things he was talking about was how the north and south split up basically like uh, because of like geographic conditions like like soil fertility and, and stuff like that where it just happened to be that the North is more conducive to industrial stuff and the South is more conducive to agriculture. And yeah, yeah. A lot yeah. of a lot of the differences in ideology like come down to like yeah. a legacy of, you know, yeah. slavery and the Civil War and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And like yeah. um like even um like uh being uh like drinking or not, like people that were for <laughs> prohibition tended to be like Southerners. Mm-hmm. who didn't mm-hmm. drink quite as much as the Northerners who were mm-hmm. mit- distilling since the yeah. 1400s or the 1500s or whatever. So. Right. They're just not going to draw so I recommend that episode yeah. a lot. It was very good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. It was actually like a, a pretty good analysis, something I, I wish that was like greater considered the way it, it talked about how the, the regional considerations and how each, mm-hmm. each uh, state differed um, was the original consideration when creating this, and and basically it all starts to coming unglued in like the 20th century. By the time you start having these parties, which now start dating back to the Civil War, and, and they're no longer like you don't have like the Federalists falling way <laughs> to like the Whigs or anything. Yeah, yeah. His whole his whole thesis was like the checks and balances thing depended on not having uh, parties that were ideologically coherent. And now in the 2000s, we have parties that are ideologically coherent. And right. Mitch McConnell right. is leading the charge to make the checks and balances totally useless by yeah. just being obstructionist when they're out of power and doing whatever yeah. they want yeah. when they're in power. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's at this point, it is it is essentially lockstep power for its own sake, etc. And I think that's a yeah. good way of putting it is that like... Um, um, the ideological aspect of, of the checks and balances or, or you know, partisanship or whatever. Um, the Sorry, go ahead. Okay. Yeah. Um, anyway, yeah. so we're, we're getting a little off track. So let's, let's move on to or the next Are we extremely on track? Hmm. Yeah. Ahead, <laughs> um, so I, I next bring up the work by David Graeber, the latest uh, by him about bullshit mm-hmm. jobs. Mm-hmm. And how there's all these jobs that people uh, that are working them uh, think are useless. And uh, he kind of connects it to, uh, like, inadvertently to Blair Fix's research, uh, which is that, like, the more of these make work jobs there are, mm-hmm. um, the more easily uh, a manager can justify a higher rate of pay because they have all these people working under them. Right. Yeah. The mid to a high level, like management positions, which do require serious credentials. 
um, which require you to a lot, know a lot about the field. But in the end, like, what are you really doing from day to day? If you're a corporate lawyer, how does that really contribute to anything going on in society that's really necessary? Right. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. A lot of a lot of um, just to build on like make work uh, at the, especially at the like kind of professional, quote unquote, professional career level um, and the mid to upper management, everything like that. So much of uh, the kind of. Um, a uh, 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 highly specialized or highly qualified or or um, otherwise elite and credentialed right um, um, work uh, positions uh, professional positions in this hierarchy exist almost solely on their ability to build negotiate maintain or destroy or displace the intrigues that that they all stir up in order to mm-hmm keep class in place, right? And keep themselves in those classes. So it's really, it's essentially social processes masked as productive processes, which is, I mean, that's a bit Marxian, but like, um, you know, to me, that makes sense. It's, you know, lawyers coming up with arguments against other lawyers who are, are, you know, coming up with arguments against various bureaucrats and the bureaucrats exist in order to, it's very like, you know, you can bring it into a, a critique of state and or capitalism, you know, because it's all, just yeah, I would language. almost say it's more Kafkaesque than Marx. Oh, certainly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you can. I think like you can a, be both. <laughs> yeah. <that's> <laughs> I mean, when but you it when it's you kind of like it. a Byzantine, like pointless bureaucracy that's just yes. like fighting itself over exists for itself, the right? Yeah. To exist and for and yeah. against itself. Uh huh. Uh huh. Yep. Yeah, yeah. It certainly does I mean, become Kafkaesque when you follow yeah. it to like the conclusions of today's world. Um, yeah. Yep. Where you have literal companies just that profit like 700 or 800 dollars per person that's being held in captivity at the border yep 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 so do you guys think that your jobs are useful or pointless i would say 100 percent pointless <laughs> yeah uh i would say like anything that i have done that isn't in direct uh, so di- like really direct service of like production and design and things like that. Um, where, you know, cause I've been like a technical editor where I was helping uh, documents conform to styles and standards and specifications so that an engineer wouldn't misinterpret what they were reading. Right. And also to streamline blah, blah, blah. Uh, and to make it look pretty and, you know, aesthetics do count to some extent in these things too. Uh, but yeah, so that was important because you don't want like these 787s falling out of the sky, or at least you don't want it to be your fault when they actually do. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> fuck you, Bowling. Uh, and then there's like uh, shit that I have done where, you know, like I've been a fucking bar back and I am again, actually, by the way. Uh, and you're like, yeah, of course, I'm running shit for some other workers to work, like do physical work to get a product into somebody's hands where it's warm and tasty and they're going to give you money for it. You know, that's not pointless because it's just service work or, or production work. Yeah. Um, but a lot of the other jobs that I've had is like admin contractor or ops contractor, you know, um, data entry. Uh, once I was in a fucking contract where the VP at this place, one of the, well, sorry, one of the like 12 fucking VPs, um, just a, just a stable of uselessness. Um, Real office space hours. Oh yeah, real office space hours. And 
he told his EA, who was, by the way, an extremely overqualified person, he was like, uh, you know, so and so, I want you to. He's like, I, w- I want you to update all the all my contacts in Outlook. And she looked, and he had like a few thousand contacts in Outlook. And so she's like, I'm going to get a temp. <laughs> and, I, and that temp was me. So I show up and she's like, hi, so here's the situation. And I was like, okay. And I'm like, that sounds like hell. So, so she's like, you know, um, you're just going to have to basically do your best. And obviously like, you know, I'm, I'm running interference between me and or between you and him if anything goes wrong. So I can kind of cover your ass a bit, but like you need to update three or 4,000 contacts for this guy in the space of like a month. And I was like, yikes. okay, yikes. And I was like, where is the data? And she's like, it's just probably out there on the internet. And I was like, oh, fuck. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I basically can't, I just wound it down to like this uh, extremely fast data entry situation where I was like Google, you know, like copy paste name into Google, bam, 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 top 10 hits, top three hits something. If it looked legit, I would then click, tw- take a few looks. Is this person still at this company? If not, update it real quick, as, as quickly as possible. I found a few people who were deceased, you know, that kind of thing. And a few people who, of course, had extremely common names, uh, you know, like fucking, you know, Gary Johnson or something. And you're like, God damn it, you know. It's, so you're just going, going Gary Johnson. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and, uh, and then, of course, you know, a lot of these contacts were people at like hedge funds and stuff. And hedge funds are one of those types of places that are notoriously private, secretive, et cetera, because of course they're all just handing each other money and escorts and shit. And so you can't find their fucking contact information. Escorts, huh? Well, you know what they, these people are like. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and so, yeah, so I, so, I, guess, yeah, I guess it depends on how useless. far your gaze is because like, uh, I mean, in that situation, clearly it's like, pointless it's like yeah you could do this shit yourself like fuck off uh but for my job it's like well you know um i'm programming stuff and the thing doesn't get made unless i program it but you know in terms of what i'm actually doing it's like okay so it's a a survey system uh for uh like private schools to enter data about like tuition and and salaries and stuff so that they can figure out how much to charge and how much to pay their employees Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, according to my ideology, it's useless. <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't know if that, I don't know if I categorize that under useful or useless. Because obviously, like, if I were to do something uh, that has a better purpose, then my job wouldn't be useless. So I don't know. Yeah, I think. Um, I've th- go ahead. I was going to say, I think I've run the bill because there are times where it seems like the the more sort of useless and superficial it is, the, the better it's done. Um, I know when I was first looking for work and I was really hard up, I worked as a, a janitor for a, an assisted living facility. So for basically people Ooh. who are so old that... Um, oh, that sounds rough. Yeah, they require 24-7 things. And this place was like notoriously understaffed. Basically I was one of two people for a, a huge wing. I'm probably cleaning like 30 or 40 rooms in an eight hour shift. And it's, 
Like that is probably, I mean, you need someone to clean up these rooms because they also had a ward for people in dementia. So, I mean, some of the most, I mean, I wouldn't say, I don't even know how to put it, but like, you're just literally finding like feces, like underneath the beds and stuff. Like you can't just Just leave that. That's probably the most necessary job is getting that, um, disposed of, um, (laughs) and 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 getting the shit off of old people. Yeah, getting shit off of old people, cleaning yeah, up the rooms, right. making sure that uh, a lot of the surfaces are wiped down. Because, I mean, talking about people with weakened immune systems at the right. end of their life, uh, if you leave, like, too much dust or anything, like, that's, mm-hmm. like, very necessary. And it also was well, only On the other for- hand, we could kill everyone when they turn 30, like Logan's Run. Oh, yeah. yeah I, I'm pretty sure it was a movie about how that was a good idea to do that. Basically. Yeah. And certainly, as as I come up to my thirtieth birthday, I'm I'm actually just hoping that it becomes a policy at some point because uh, this is for the. I would have been dead four months ago. <laughs> I was gonna say I uh, I owe people some years back, I guess. Um, but uh, like one of the most more recent jobs I had was uh, I I ran um, I was a technician for a radio station, so I, I maintained their antenna. So like they could broadcast out the cars and everything, and it was very, very interesting because radio is very much like a dying uh, thing, even though it works yeah. so well. It's right, and it'll never like stop being like a solid technological thing. Um, you can just listen to shit on your iPhone. Um, I mean, of course, we're doing a podcast. This this will never be. Well, it might be on terrestrial radio. I don't I don't know. Like maybe one that day. Would be but- awesome. Um, when I, when I was doing it, you know, all I had to do was make sure, like, does it work? Yeah, it does. Um, and there are certain parts of the system that maybe I had to do a little bit more work on. I had to come up with some creative solutions sometimes to make sure that it was still going out in the air. At one point, the entire studio flooded out and, uh, they needed me to replace it. But there, there's like the question of like, you know, if I don't do my job today, is anyone going to die? And it was like, <laughs> no one. <laughs> will ever miss me if I just disappeared off the face of the earth. Like the people driving in cars, no, they'll still keep listening to Spotify on their iPhones. Like they won't miss me, the technician at the thing. Surely, I've really the- thought for a long time that that should be the logic for organizing. You know, the, the social division of labor is like, okay, what jobs do we need to do? We need to do the ones that will prevent people from dying, and then if we have anyone left over to work, we'll do the things that are. Uh, maybe a little bit less necessary than that. And if we have anyone left over, we can do like the useless shit. And uh, if you guys get tired of doing that, uh, here's an idea. Make robots that will <laughs> do those jobs for you. And then you won't have to do them anymore. <laughs> I mean, but we also have like systems so centralized and everything that like, yeah, I mean, fuck, like, do we really like, I mean, and that's at the heart of bullshit jobs by uh, Graber is like, you know, a lot of us aren't needed and we could probably give back to all the other things, like all the social connections that we've for like just been decimated by our new like social organization. But the, by the fact wow. that what, how many hours do we have to spend at work? How many days do we have to spend at work? How much vacation time do you get? When's the last time you've seen your family? Like I have to move constantly to keep finding work as uh, it inevitably drives up. Uh, and I'm just sweeping along. And right now, it's like, you know, my mother's taking care of uh, my grandfather. And it's something only afforded to her because she's retired. And I'm watching, you know, the man who essentially, like, raised me um, from when I was, like, 
very small to just about when I was ready to go off to college. Like, I'm just, you know, I'm calling my mom every week and I just get updates on, like, how he's slowly passing away and I can't be there for him the same way he was there for me. Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's also, like, kind of a because of, you know, the state organizing society. Like, yeah. I mean, economic... Long ago, we wouldn't have, you know, abandoned... Well, I guess they probably abandoned old people sometimes, but, you know, they wouldn't have, like, thrown them into the hands of some other person that was, like, forced to take care of them all the time. It would be more like they stay with you until it's their time or whatever, and you take care of them because you have a bunch of extra time that you're not spending, you know, doing a 40-plus-hour-a-week job. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's necessary. Like, like literally, without assistance like the same way that you know other families will send uh you know the, their older um family members to assist living facilities i mean without my mother being there grandfather would li- probably die um i mean mm-hmm. he's, he's very close at this point and i mean this is just you know these are the opportunities afforded to me based off of i guess as we we're saying earlier your position to the hierarchy within whatever firm you work for um you know, it just determines what sort of life I get. It's, it's you know, basically yeah. like a caste system. As much as we like to think that, um, or the liberal assumption is that economics mm-hmm. and politics are separated. I mean, <laughs> these economic organizations are, are as any much uh, political organizations um, as the actual political ones that you get to pretend that you're voting with. And um, just based off of how politically or, in this case, economically important you are, that's the quality of your life now. So that's actually a perfect segue into the next point, which is um, I I go into these uh, studies of rare surnames. Um, There's this guy, Gregory, 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 wow. Gregory Clark. <laughs> Gregory Clark. Uh, so he's an economist who started to study uh, probate records, which are uh, they're like court records that happen I think, like at the time of death to find out like what your estate is essentially. Uh, I, I think that's what it is. I never looked it up, but that's that's what I understand from context. Um, so he like looked through these probate records and looked for people with unusual surnames. Uh, because what he wanted to do was study intergenerational wealth and um, finding out like what the connection is between families is, is not an easy task. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if you don't have like full genealogy records or whatever for like each person. Um, so if you study rare surnames, then those tend to be passed on because of the like patronymic system that we have. Um so anyway, uh, he looked at records over like hundreds of years, um, and he's done it in uh, like with the assistance of of people in other countries, uh, in a bunch of different countries, um, and that includes like Japan through like from before the Meiji Restoration and China mm-hmm. before the Communist Revolution, and so what he finds in these studies is like social classes are very persistent, and they they do like often persist through these major upheavals um, uh-huh. in the case of the Meiji restoration um, during the Edo period, the two top classes of society were the, the daimyo, the Lords and the uh, samurai, the warrior class. Um, and during the Meiji restoration, they were 
uh, merged into a new aristocracy called the Kazoku, uh, which Chris says here means family. And um, they also they also brought in like some other families from like the the middle like the middle class to the upper class based mm-hmm. on like service mm-hmm. to their country or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, yeah. So there were there was some class advancement for some people, but these daimyo and samurai families uh, stayed in the upper class through the Meiji Restoration. And oh. then likewise in the Chinese Communist Revolution, um, you know, they, they did uh, achieve some measure of equality, but there were still some persistent uh, families in the upper class, um, even though they targeted, like, you know, the capitalist elite or whatever. Um, mm. And I think his his hypothesis about it was like the focus on like exploitation and, and land ownership and not uh, families who form essentially like coalitions to keep themselves in the upper class uh, was why these families stayed in like the, the new upper class that uh, was re- like formed after the revolution. Oh, that's depressing as fuck. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think the, the study of England looked over like 1,100 years or something like that, mm-hmm. or it was like from the year 1,100 or something, something like that. Yeah. Um, and yeah, very persistent social classes. It's crazy. Yeah. I think, I think uh, okay, really... So, huh? Go ahead. I was just to say, I think really the only times when, um, let's say the like the families within these structures are um, are actually effectively displaced is when they are uh, well um, um, annihilated or, or exiled, um, which I think is honestly like points and points to uh, you know points to people who who are in favor of like kind of the kind of bloody purge violent revolution style of yeah. approach. <laughs> you know, I get it, and it is a big. Yeah, I should check France. Right? I didn't check France. Yeah, well, I mean, even in France, there were a lot of uh, a lot of like uh, petit bourgeois and, and nobles and stuff who became um, part of the revolutionary uh, government as revolutionaries and radicals. And then some of them, you know, some of them stayed that way, and some of them turned back to a kind of a more quote unquote moderate or moderate liberal or whatever uh, kind of stance. And some, I think, even went back to kind of conservative something or other after everything had died down, and they could, you know take off their cockades and shit um, or, you know, keep them on and pretend that, you know, we're all on the same team, uh, which explains actually a lot of the popularity uh, of, you know, like Napoleon and, and everything since then. Um, but uh, I digress. Yeah. Um, Cause I mean, I think was it Napoleon was one of the first times where you start getting to maybe the, the illusions of meritocracy where you could prove your worth. Right. Within the context of the the Napoleonic Wars, if you make things happen, exactly, exactly, uh, boom. Uh, it doesn't matter what, what family you're from anymore. It's like, no, we need you, your intelligence, and what your worth is. I mean, and there's certainly, um, I mean, that's the illusion we like to paint in in the United States as well. Is that if if you work hard and if you prove yourself, if you have the the right credentials, if you go to college, if you get this degree, um, no your path to success is, you know, that, that straight line, of course, um, it doesn't 
necessarily seem to work out for a lot. And there are a lot of people now disillusioned with that, especially when you look at like what the public opinion of uh, the American dream is, what social mobility is starting to look like uh, in the successive generations and even across um, uh, the these racial demographics. I know I think black men is the easiest for downward social mobility. Um, yeah. yeah. They have the hardest time, uh, black men retaining wealth uh, along generations um, compared to most others. Yeah, there was that um, thing by, I hate citing him, but Matt Brunig and uh, Ryan Cooper about how the mortgage crisis response uh, in 2009 by Obama was like the biggest destruction of black wealth in like decades. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you also had a lot of private equity firms just cleaning up at that point where, yeah. uh, a lot of the mortgages where they couldn't be upheld. Um, you know, people are forced out into their homes. These houses are now taken by private equity firms and they're turned into like single family rentals, especially across the Midwest where I think home ownership goes from like 83% to like 72%. And a lot of families uh, who are flying by the seat of their pants on these mortgages uh, are now having to rent out the house that they assumably had legal, legal ownership over. And um, of course, it only gets worse as like the private equity firm steps in because they're not even a real landlord at this point they're not flesh and blood not there they're not you know coming over to fix the problems with the house you can't assumably work on your house anymore the way you could when you owned it so uh, and even if you i mean even if you could you just be spending money on something that you don't own yeah exactly Capital one of those moments <laughs> i almost wonder if like because I, I know that like the neoliberal movement was started by like some uh, I don't know, like, how accurate this is, but, like, there is a narrative that the neoliberal movement was started by, like, a memo by um, some business owner saying that, essentially, like, uh, business owners need to get more involved in politics and get things to be more favorable to business. And I I was thinking, like, just now, like, I wonder if, like, it could almost be characterized as a revanchist movement. Um, where the people that are actually ideologically behind it have this revanchist belief system and the people that we attribute to um, actually carrying out a lot of the things that like the government has done to make this whole thing happen uh, we're just sort of like vessels for ideology and just sort of like you know stupid brainless managers who just made all that stuff happen because um, there are these business leaders uh, kind of like whispering in their ear and giving them funding mm-hmm. for their political mm-hmm. campaigns. Well, I mean, that's a very existential question. I mean, right. what are any of us, if not like vessels for ideology, sort of just responding to the conditions surrounding us? Right, right. True, well, but I mean, some of us know. at least have ideology, whereas the, <laughs> like the yeah. neoliberal politicians, a lot of them just are, are just dullards. Yeah, they're just holding water uh, for yeah. a lot of it. Yeah. I mean, because yeah. when you look at it, and we, when we first met, met, uh, talked about how a lot of the revolutions fell short, um, 
I know, like, one of the favorite point, points was, like, the, the Paris Revolution. Um, and, you know, coming to me, like, I, I have a hard time uh, reading through theory and parsing through a lot of the history because this has sort of been self-study on my own. Um, but, the, like, the more I've learned about the Paris Revolution, the, the, the sort of less revolutionary, like, it's, it's become to me because it it sort of was always this petite bourgeois um, revolution where it's just, oh, this wasn't actually like, you know, maybe it didn't really carry with it the possibility for communism. It was just all the, all the liberals getting together and, they're, and, they're, and they were just like, finally, like, you know, I'm tired of this feudal bullshit. Let's do this liberal bullshit now. Um, and, and of right. course, it yeah, it's change. easy to get lost in the optics of the upper class being murdered, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and I think that especially happens uh, a lot in, um, in like when you talk about the American Revolution, just for like you know, it, what what I think the public perception of the American Revolution is is it really a revolution if it's just replacing one oppressive class with another oppressive class? Mm-hmm. Um, what what was that the that one quote from uh, the uh, a people's history like tyranny is tyranny, let it come from where it may. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. One of the one of the first things, one of the earliest things that it sort of put a crack in my view of of uh, the American uh, Revolution, in, in particular. Um, not, I mean, I was already like eh, government. I was always skeptical of that shit. I mean, I grew up in a fucking dictatorship, so you get really skeptical really fast, even as like a five year old. But like, uh, you know, you're like, yeah, like of course you can't fucking believe their lives, but. But when you talk about like history and like ideal, uh, yeah, idealism and, and, and visions and shit, you know, the, the narrative that they sell you. But anyway, the, one of the first cracks that, I, that developed in my view of that, my very positive view of, of the revolutionaries as such, uh, the founding fathers and so forth, was um, the early rebellions against the American government that you almost never hear about, you know, like Shays Rebellion and the Whiskey Rebellion, which were essentially in character yeah, identical. I still know very little about those. Yeah, uh, they're they're very like underreported, under under studied, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. In character and in and in intent and in tone, they're much the same as the, the essentially like the more kind of populist and democratic side of the American Revolution. Um, you know, the the more grassroots side of it, and it's because people thought they were going to get the things that Shays and whiskey were about, but like. In fact, they didn't. They still got fucking taxes. They still got class and hierarchy, and they still got fucking butt fucked by you know George Washington himself and all his fucking goons, to put it bluntly. Um, and he went out there personally and beat the shit he out of them. General you know? wasn't an egalitarian <laughs> ideologue. Yeah, yeah, a, a fucking aristocratic general. Yeah, <laughs> the guy with the powdered wig. Are you sure? Yeah, yeah right, right. <laughs> And uh, yeah, they got thrashed. Yeah, so yeah, I, I think it's it's interesting um, how in in America, like I, I don't think like the surname thing is as obvious to other people. Like, there's I think there might be an idea that the United States isn't necessarily as um, hasn't always been as nepotistic uh, yeah. as other. Yeah. Places, even though sure. like you obviously have like a, a line between the Roosevelt presidents, um, there's obviously the, the Bush candies. presidencies. There's um, we almost had back to back Clinton presidencies, not even yeah. passing it down the generation, but uh, horizontally 
across a marriage, um, which is uh, sort of amazing. But I mean, even I mean, if you point it out to people like, hey, why is uh, Chelsea Clinton like in charge of all this shit? Like, why is she a representative for like a Muslim organization? And like the, <laughs> the only answer to that is because she's Bill and Hillary's daughter. Yeah, yep. But nobody, <laughs> nobody could figure that out somehow. Yeah, everyone just wants to say, like, yeah, sure, um, she's their daughter, but, you know, the, she has a lot of qualifications. She obviously <laughs> they wouldn't hire her if she wasn't qualified. Yeah, right. I, I would say we're, like, two generations away from restoring, like, divine right oh, to yeah. this country, you know? <laughs> oh, no, that's, I mean, but that's also been a large project is, is you know, turning uh, the aristocrats' blood blue. And, I mean... Mm-hmm. It, even though that might have been more of a thing in, in Europe where you have religion actually propping up a lot of the divine right of kings. I mean, in the United States, we didn't have priests doing it, but we've definitely sold the idea that people get to the top through hard work and gumption. Um, the yeah. idea that, uh, like, Rockefeller was rags to riches. And, you know, this one guy obviously proves that the entire system worked out. If you can become a robber baron, I mean... Anyone can do it. Anyone. If if Bezos, Jeff Bezos could do it, uh, you could start the next Amazon like next week with a small $100,000 loan from your parents. Hey, I wonder if the if any of the Rockefellers are still rich. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> um, yeah, it's so good. W- let's, let's keep going. Um, so the next thing is about uh, Mankur Olson, who we've talked about on the show before. And he basically proposed a general theory of how social classes in nations like evolve over time. So he created this concept of distributional coalitions, uh, which includes like basically any type of organization that uh, their aim is to uh, get some sort of um, wealth for their members or you know constituents or what what have you. So that includes businesses, labor unions, um, maybe even churches, um, stuff like that. And so, basically, um, they try to reorder society to capture more of the wealth that society generates for the people that are in it. And um, over time, they sort of become this big uh, ossified like web of relations with um, you know society's institutions and the other distributional coalitions. And sometimes they fracture and uh, have to reform because of, you know, a revolution or what have you. Yeah, and and probably, like, one of the... Especially in the United States, I mean, that revolution... Like, violent or anything. Thing is some, you know, the internet um, occurring or a technological revolution. A, a lot of the more liberal revolutions um, yeah. usually happen in terms of economy, so you don't think of them as revolutions, just... Um, I don't know, momentary uh, business opportunities or something. Disrupting markets. Yeah, disrupting markets. Innovation. (laughs) Although it's a little sad to think of uh, labor unions as distributional coalitions because they've definitely been taking the L for the past couple decades. I think this is the the basic sort of, maybe I'm just building on your point sort of unnecessarily, but that's kind of, it's like, Collective bargaining is is consciously supposed to be a distributional coalition, you know, um, yeah. 
Definitely essentially saying, essentially saying, this is the fucking game, so let's play the fucking game, right? You know, we have numbers, and we can, you know, we man the production, even if we don't have uh, uh, essentially institutional control, um, and and uh, as much uh, so uh, like techno power. We have power. Um, let's exercise right. it to get something right. for ourselves. Yeah. Right. And so, yeah, yeah. Uh, essentially, John, what you're saying is it's pretty fucking pathetic. It's sad that like. They've just been taking the L, but like, you know, after what Reagan, they just kind of backed off and, you know, like we've seen some good, you know, rumblings from them, like the, uh, the flight attendants union, you know, um, did pretty well with the shutdown recently. You know, that was, that was good. Um, but we still have to do better. Um, yeah. And I mean, that's also in McAleve is to, to draw all the way back is, I mean, labor unions have also changed. And the way they've operated as yeah. well. Um, within McAlevey's book, she talks about like the three different types of um, like activist work you can do. You can do something like advocacy, which is like you know you get the experts in the room. You start wheeling and dealing in the back rooms, uh, make contributions to political campaigns. You could do mobilization, which is like the idea of like, all right, let's show up to this protest or let's do like uh, this strike just to show like what we're capable of ahead of things mm-hmm. but i mean even in mobilization that's already the people who are down and then the last one is like yeah. the organization the actual creation of the distributional coalition mm-hmm. um where you get people together who can start recognizing uh like that they're in the game together and then yeah. from the organizing you can get back to the mobilizing and mm-hmm. of course it makes the argument that we should do more organizing things and we should probably yeah. move away from the advocacy model a little bit because that's what the AFL-CIO has been doing. And since they've right. done that, um, like we've only seen a decrease overall in labor union particip- participation. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, haven't they well, agreed yeah. to like no strike contracts a lot to yeah. work, like the big unions? Yeah, so that's like generally been one of their from the table, essentially. getting hamstrung. Yeah. yeah. And this is why uh unions like the iww are all about wildcat strikes is they're just like fuck it like do an illegal strike that's i mean when was it legal before right like we're, we're getting the problem is that the unions as as we uh as they exist in the public sphere and everything like that have essentially been liberalized right um so think think of it as like you know dangest unionism <laughs> Um, like, yeah, sure. We can be capitalist and unions and uh, fuck you, you know, because suddenly they're, they're, they're shaking hands with politicians, um, pretty regularly. And that, um, yeah, like they're, they're like, let's follow the rules and be nice and play nice. And, you know, nobody gets hurt and you're like, yeah, everybody's hurting all the time is the thing, right? This is, this is what you're forgetting or choosing to ignore. Yeah. yeah, I mean, union dues aren't for political, uh, contributions. They're to maintain yourself during a strike. And yep. that, that's yeah. what like, I feel like a lot of unions have forgotten about. Like, I mean, I feel like people just don't know that about unions. They're like, oh, man, you have to pay these union dues. And I was like, right. if, if like, that's cool. like they're, yeah. they're. Well, the big propaganda like campaign by businesses has been that those union dues are for the union bosses to make money. Right. Right. Because they're a business and you can't trust business. Right, right. Which is hilarious because, you know. <laughs> That's an actual thing they say at Target. When you when you uh, get employed at Target, one of the first mm. things they do is they show you this video and they're like, unions are a business. Uh-huh. They're only interested in money. It's like, but but you guys are too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so. Right. Yep. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. The double um, think. Yeah. Of, and of also, I mean, you could be like, right. you could be an effective union without fundamentally threatening the employment relation. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like you can win more for the workers without having any desire to ever change the situation of workers being subservient to employers. Yeah, I, right. I mean, that's basically just unions in the United States. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, At least than, now, yeah. I think the IWW yeah. is explicitly... You know, yeah, IWW is still on yeah. some real yeah. shit if you read the Constitution <laughs> yeah. and everything. Yes, yes. Good old... Yeah. Uh, okay, so the next part, I go into uh, Capitalist Power, and um, we haven't talked about this fully on the show yet, I don't think, but... Um, in their book, Inflation as Redistribution, um, they draw on Mancro Olson's work um, to, and as well as uh, Thorstein Veblen's work to describe inflation as a process of restructuring society to subordinate industry to business, where industry is, you know, people actually doing stuff. Um, they would, I, I think they call it production, but um, you know, we also need to include reproductive work as well. Um, and business is essentially organizations that control the distribution of political power, uh, wealth, and and so on. And they essentially, uh, so they restructure society to subordinate industry to themselves. Yeah, basically um, like Wall Street versus Motown. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Or, or the record label versus the musician, even. Yeah. Uh, whereas where the musicians are industry, they're, uh, they're the industry workers, and the record labels are the business uh, mm-hmm. you know, managers or whatever. Um, and so, of course, in capitalist power theory, as we've discussed many times, uh, they find that Large elite businesses are mostly formed out of mergers of smaller uh, smaller elite businesses, like the Kazaku of the Meiji Restoration. Um, and the the merger and acquisition process explains the distribution of uh, corporate capital better than any other factor. Um, so if you look at the businesses that have the highest capitalization relative to the average, uh, they are the ones that uh, do that have the most M&A activity. M&A means mergers and acquisitions. Um, and M&A activity is like a business metric. So the ones that have the highest measure of that um, are the ones that do the best in the market. I love how we make up metrics just to justify how well these businesses are doing as they <laughs> completely destroy other businesses. <laughs> yeah. Especially as you look at like things uh, like uh, like the corporate raiders, um, like things like like Bain Capital. Yeah, I love that shit. <laughs> it's so and interesting. It's it's like the like the like the alien like from from like the like the movie just like eats out your intestines. It pops out and <laughs> yeah, right. just walks around to the next victim. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's yeah, it's, it's it's one of those things that like we experience mergers and acquisitions all the time. Mm-hmm. But it's not something that is really talked about in Marxist theory at all. I think I mean, did, probably wasn't that common back then. I mean, did he um, get to, to to see some shit like like his his favorite toy store like just get bought up and and all of a sudden all the all the employees at his favorite toy store just get like fired and they get no severance pay that they don't know yeah. 
where their next paycheck is coming from. They have to do new stuff. And then the Toy Story doesn't exist anymore. Nothing's coming yeah. to replace it. It's, yeah. it's just gone forever. And he's no Fucking longer a Toys R Us kid. I mean, Mark's, Mark's never got to feel that firsthand to, to put that in the <laughs> capital. Yeah. Um, so some of my high school friends uh, are, you know, they went to college around here and got jobs around here. So naturally they are defense contractors or you know, of course. <laughs> adjacent to that. Yeah. Um, so one of my friends worked for this company called uh, Orbital and they uh, recently got bought out by Northrop Grumman. So now he works for Northrop Grumman, which means that my other friend who worked for Northrop Grumman before that is now his coworker. Um, and then like when I, at my last job, I worked for Caribou Coffee and uh, they got bought out by uh, Northrop Grumman. <laughs> JNA Bexinger group or something. Some fucking like Dutch, Dutch guys uh, bought caribou coffee as well as pete's coffee and then they just decided that uh that pete's would do better um if they you know just homogenized everything uh so all of the stores became pete's so i worked for pete's company or pete's coffee because our company just got bought it got acquired by some fucking like dutch uh what you call it not a hedge fund i don't know whatever you call that shit holding company or something yes yeah. Yeah, the, the same stuff that happened to um, uh, was it uh, Bush? Because um, I mean, over in uh, Virginia when I was growing up, you know, you always had like Bush Gardens. You had the, like the beer and everything. Then it gets bought by, by, by like InBev, and you know, goodbye. So I was I lived right down the street from the Bush Brewery, or the uh, sorry, the uh, the Dominion Brewery, which was bought out by Bush, which was then bought out by. Uh, Budweiser. Yep. Just just never ends. Yeah. Yeah, and it sucks too because like I would go to that brewery with my with my dad when I was a kid. He would get beers and I would get a root beer. And then like right when I was about to turn twenty one, I was like, Oh man, I'll finally get to get a get a beer at the Dominion brewery and uh then they got bought out. <laughs> I was so fucking pissed. <laughs> Uh, so I looked it up. It's uh, Joe A. Benkisser. It's a German conglomerate headquartered in Luxembourg. And they own uh, Pete's Coffee, Mighty Leaf Tea, Caribou, Einstein Brothers Bagels, Keurig Dr. Pepper, which I guess is a company now. They are a merger. They own Krispy Kreme, Panera Bread, Oban Pong, uh, Paradise Bakery, Brugger's, and pret so All the same company. What what I heard is I can make Dr. Pepper now my Keurig. <laughs> that, I would get a Keurig if I could do that. 